It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a profile of one reporter and his act of, I don't know, let's call it data defiance. David Yanofsky is a reporter for Quartz, and he deals with data sets all the time. His beat is the economy, immigration, all sorts of stuff, but it's all driven by numbers. He's also, at this moment, suing the U.S. government. You'll hear David tell the story this episode, but basically in his attempts to report on who enters this country, he tried to get his hands on a data set from the International Trade Administration, the ITA. He asked them for the data going back a few years, and they came back to him and said, no problem, you can have it. That'll be $173,775. Cut to weeks and weeks of paperwork and battles later, and now David, with help from the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press, is suing to try to make sure this data set and others like it are more accessible to journalists and the public. Let's get right into the story and start with the thing that caught my eye when I first read about this. David writes that the database from the International Trade Administration is the only comprehensive record of people coming into the U.S. It tallies U.S. visitors by their origin, age, residency, port of entry, visa type, and initial destination. I was surprised by that, and I asked him how it could be that the only data of this kind lives with an agency that, frankly, I'd never even heard of. Yeah, they are the uh, official purveyor of, of these statistics, and they they're you know they're proud of that. They put it on their website that say these are anytime you hear a statistic about the number of any sort of person coming into the United States, it came from them. And they they even have like a little line on there. It's like even if you heard it from whomever, it actually came from us originally. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know the International Trade Administration. It's it's part of the Department of Commerce. It. It is tasked with trade promotion and they work with businesses and they work with in, in our country uh, to help them sell their products uh, abroad and, and uh, acquire products from other countries. And so you wanted to get your hands on this information. So to walk us through your reporting process. I mean, when you started this, did you expect to just go online, find the database, download it and, and off you go? I mean, I, I, I started this. I started this years ago. I started this when I when I was working on a story um, about Brazilians traveling to Orlando and specifically Disney World. There is this phenomenon in Brazil um, where going to Disney World is a real marker of of like economic success, and um, people in Brazil are apparently obsessed with Disney. And it turns out that that um, in the statistics that I was able to glean um, at that time, 30% of Brazilian tourists to the United States were going to Orlando. 30%. 30%. An enormous country. Whoa. 30%. Yes. <laughs> like millions and millions of people. They, you know, the next, the next closest city was like New York City or something. And it was like single digits. Um, it was pretty incredible. And I wanted more detailed information about that. And I, and I talked to the International Trade Administration and they didn't want to, they didn't want to give it to me as a journalist. And I just kind of let it go. And then, you know, still thinking about that data and wanting to learn more, um, I thought maybe I could access the, the same data through a FOIA request instead of um, through the press channels. So I ended up filing this request and they denied it. And a FOIA request is just... FOIA uh, is the pronunciation of the acronym for the uh, Freedom of Information Act, and it allows anyone, not just journalists, to request 
documents from the government um, or records um, more broadly, data being a type of record that you can request. But what, what makes FOIA so powerful for journalists is that there are exceptions and carve-outs specifically for them um, and nonprofits and, and um, certain other organizations that allow them to get these, these records at reduced or no cost. Um, so when I look at the data that I was after and I see that the list price is $173,000, um, using FOIA was a way for me to get that at, at low to no cost. So they basically wanted just to just charge you the open market price for this data, as opposed to handing it over through the, the usual FOIA process that journalists tend to use. Right. Uh, correct. And, and they gave me, you know, so, so I submitted this request and, and they have a certain amount of time to respond, which, um, if any, anyone who knows anything about FOIA knows that no one ever responds in the, in, in that amount of time, but they eventually got back to me. Um, they told me no. So then I appealed, um, to the, to the higher administrative, um, authority. And, uh, they also said no, but for a different reason, and then the only kind of recourse that you have after a Freedom of Information Act appeal is uh, denied is to file a lawsuit. Was that a hard decision to sue the U.S. government? Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I was getting so riled up about what they were <laughs> what they were telling me in these responses and also in their official responses, as well as in you know conversations that I was just having with with the people that were processing my request that. I, I was ready to show them just how serious uh, I was about getting this data. Were the people processing the request kind of like just doing their job and rolling their eyes at this as well? I mean, where was the like, where do you, who do you feel was actually setting up the barrier and what was their stated rationale for it? I mean, as, as far as I know, it's, it's, you know, some people behind some curtains in the uh, international trade administration. Um, they, try and come up with a rationale that is within the law um, and persuasive to either release or withhold the records. Um, and and obviously we wouldn't be suing if we didn't think that their reasons were persuasive enough. did the $173,000 mark come from? I mean, where do they, how do they set their price point? So there's two databases, um, one for that's specifically uh, directed towards information about foreign nationals, and then there's one um, that includes ev everyone who's on airplanes. And, you know, you can subscribe to the most detailed data coming from these programs on a on an annual basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis, and we we wanted the most detailed annual files, and they charge the the list price for that is around fifteen thousand um, dollars for the most current year. And if you go back a year, it's it's a little bit less, and you go back a year, and it's a little bit less, and you go back a year, and a little bit less. So we are asking for six years of data from two databases, and if you add up. Uh, what's on the list, you end up with a, a little over $173,000. Do you think there's any scenario in which the government should be charging for data? It's hard to say. 
Um, I'm, there are definitely situations where uh, the government is in a position to do unique research for um, people who request it, and that would wouldn't otherwise be done. And I think it, it's entirely valid for the government to charge for um, the cost of that. But but we're not talking about special work here. We're talking about baseline statistics by by the agency's own admission. These are official government statistics that they are selectively releasing to the people that have the means to pay for them, which in this case really only means international corporations that would be into, and you know, a corporation that might be interested might be a hotel group. It might be um, a theme park. It might be a city's tourism bureau to other businesses Um this expense is is very hard to justify. Um, but needless to say, you know there are plenty of other government agencies that give away massive amounts of data that are of huge value to free for free, um, namely the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, you know, I'm sure Wall Street banks would be willing to pay millions, if not billions, of dollars to access uh, unemployment or employment figures early or exclusively. Um, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics doesn't even, doesn't charge for it. They give it away for everyone for free because of its value broadly to the entire economy, to businesses of all sizes, of all types, um, and of all means. So does that mean that this Bureau doesn't think of its data as having a widespread use? It'd be hard to imagine that they don't see the value of their data it's a it's a very interesting stance that they're taking because on one hand they say that their data is hugely valuable um, and their mission is to promote trade of U.S. companies of all sizes around the world. Yet they say that this data is too valuable for us to give away for free. It is so valuable that we have to charge for it, which which seemingly seemingly goes against their mission. But then again, um, they're also charging for this data because they always have. This isn't something that they just started doing. This is something that from everything I can tell, they've been doing for years and years and years. And and in my conversations with the people uh, mediating my request, it's become very clear that, that the people that hold this data are under the impression or, or, or are surprised by this request because they've just been doing it this way for so long. Um, they've never really considered that this data should be made available for free. So why do you think this data is valuable? To any business um, that is looking to market to a global consumer, a global tourist coming to the United States, it is, depending on your industry, it could be essential. You should know when you need people of certain language skills. If you might need someone of certain language skills next year or the year after, you should know how old to expect or how young to expect your clientele to be and how you, how you might be able to market them. From a policy standpoint, especially in this election cycle, there has been lots of talk about immigration, 
um, and the t- both both from a, a in an economic way and in a national security context that we can't really look granularly at any of the claims that are being made um, or have you know the official government truth of who is coming into the country. But that but the debate is about illegal immigration, right? Almost by definition, people who wouldn't show up in a database like this. Uh, they would show up in a database. Much of them would show up in the database like this because people who are overstaying their visas um, have entered the country and have a record. People who there are plenty of um, illegal immigrants who come to the United States on a legal visa and then overstay and have never left. And there's been lots of talk of that in this election cycle. And after the, after the terrorist attacks in Belgium and, and in France, there's been lots of talk of, especially uh, uh, people coming from visa waiver countries, people who can come to the United States on an airplane and step off and have, uh, I think it's 90 days to just travel around the US however they want. And then if they stay, they stay. There's no, the United States doesn't even really track or doesn't track in a comprehensive manner uh, when foreign nationals leave the United States. Um, The only records that we have is when they enter. So this data would provide great information on the ages, the genders, the nationalities of people coming from visa waiver countries. Uh, It would tell us what cities they were going to. It would tell us where their first... Um, expected address what was. So if someone is, is, someone might be flying into New York, but going to Connecticut, we would know that. Um, there's also the ability to, to look at Muslim majority countries. How many, in the broadest metrics that you probably see in the news, you could, you could get some estimates about the total number of people coming from Muslim majority countries um, into the United States. With this data, you could look at that that same group but then you could also break it down by gender and age you could say or even just by country you know we could say how many how many 18 to 25 year old men from muslim majority countries have come to the united states um in recent years we could also see the trend because we're looking at at multi-year data we could then break that down even further and say how many of them are syrian nationals how many of them are jordanian how many of them are from any other country? Um, and you're telling me that right now, that question, how many young Jordanians are coming to the United States, we can't answer that question unless we pay for this data from the ITA? Or someone at the State Department or another uh, government agency wants to ask the ITA to uh, come up with that figure for them in deriving official government statistics. So, um if, yeah. if the State Department wanted to be the go-between on every time I had a question about how many, about the specific demographics of, of a group coming to the country, I guess they could do that. But I don't think that's a tenable solution, nor is it a responsible one journalistically. We'll get back to the conversation with David Yanofsky in a minute. But first, What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux. The Black Tux is the best way to get quality crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos for any wedding or special event rented to you right online. It is indeed wedding season, and if you've ever been part of a wedding party or had to organize a wedding party, you know that coordinating outfits can be a real hassle. You have to try and find a store, try and all visit at the same time, go back and forth for fitting and measurements. Well, the Black Tux makes that whole process incredibly easy. 
When I got married, planning for the wedding was actually really, really fun, but there was just this endless to-do list. So why not take advantage of one way to cross off a big item on your to-do list right now, right online, at your convenience? All you have to do is visit theblacktux.com and select from complete looks or build your own piece by piece. They have a huge range of sharp-looking outfits so that everyone looks great on the big day. You fill out your measurements, what kind of fit you like. You can even call them up and get style advice on the phone from a real human being. After you've built your outfit, your suit arrives a week before your event. When you're all done, you just put the suit back in the box it came in and ship it for free, of course, back to the Black Tux. So check it out by going to theblacktux.com slash point. Make sure you enter theblacktux.com slash point so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. What does it say that the government has decided that this kind of information belongs with a trade agency? You know, that they're kind of saying immigration is inherently a commercial act. The, the primary reason why people come to this country is tourism, um, not immigration. There are hundreds of millions, I believe, of people that come to the U.S. and leave where, you know, the number of people coming to the United States and staying is, is much smaller. Um, so the idea that that you should be able to exploit the economic promise of those people um, doesn't seem so foreign to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously, obviously, like, you know, uh, immigration in terms of uh, come and stay and become a citizen or come and become a person, permanent resident, that context is important. But and it is it is definitely a hot button issue, um, but it's not the primary type of thing that's happening um, with people crossing borders you know one of the one of the ways that journalists use foia is they're looking for specific thing but there's also kind of speculative foiaing. i don't know if that's the right term but you know it's like let me get my hands on the on the data and see what see what emerges and so i'm just wondering i know you started this trying to get some specific stuff but are there like do you have a hunch as to what might be lying in there that excites you or what kind of stories you might be able to report out if you get your hands on this? The, the number of stories that could come out of it, I, I think, are just infinite. Um, it could be something as nuanced as or as uh, you know specific as just looking at the tourism trends, the international tourism trends to a specific city and – um, you know, on a city, a city like Las Vegas, I'm sure that is very in interesting about, um, or a city like Denver, who is, who is coming to Denver in the wintertime? Um, are they, you know, are these people, uh, who are, you know, seemingly going to go skiing? Are they coming for conferences? Are they, you know, are they doing pot tourism now? Is Denver have a lot of pot tourism? Who knows? Um, but it has great implications for, local economies and national and and on the national level um if we can if we can reveal these trends and then of course there's always there's always the chance that these statistics aren't very good um which mm -hmm. would be it would be shocking but it's the case and it, but it's i mean it, it's possible um that the government is charging exorbitant sums for statistics that just for reasons of quality shouldn't even uh be so high priced but we don't know that unless we can see them
But why did you decide to publish an article about this? There are journalists at least fighting FOIA battles every day, and they're not writing about it publicly. Well, I think they should. Um, as as my own opinion, publish publish about what you're doing. Um, I, I I think I saw one tweet in criticism. Um, uh, of of me writing about this saying like oh i'm uh, you know and it was like someone who was conflicted they're like one part of me says like oh you're just doing your job and the other part of me says yeah you're suing the government but the i mean the fact of the matter is like it's a court case and uh, and uh it's newsworthy and um it is a a righteous cause in our opinion and we're going to we're going to tell people that we're a part of it um, there's no reason to be embarrassed or ashamed or um, uh, quiet or uh, bashful about taking an action to support your journalism. And if anything, uh, you know, if we can win the hearts and minds of our readers and have them have them support us in the case and have them continue to be interested in this story and others about people trying to open data and access government records that that are hard to get. Did you ever consider just paying up? Um, maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, you can consider paying up as much as you can, uh, as as much as you can really comprehend the amount of money that it's going to take. I mean, look, I've been reading. I've been seeing courts is fairly well funded. <laughs> you got some courts backers. Doing well. I don't think. I don't. I don't think. You know, to tell you the truth, I'd rather have. I'd rather have a couple more colleagues than than this data. There's also um, a larger fight to fight here. Yeah, I mean obviously obviously we're hoping obviously we're hoping for a good outcome in this case and we're hoping for an outcome that can that can serve as a marker um for other cases like this in the future. Um one of the reasons why the attorneys at the reporters committee were so uh willing to take on this case is that there is no case law around this. Um this issue is completely unresolved of whether a nonprofit or journalistic enterprise should be entitled to uh, entitled to data that is normally charged for um, for free. So you're saying this is kind of the first lawsuit of its kind? Uh, as far as I know, as far as my lawyers know, um, yes. So yeah, we're we are we are hoping to blaze a path. And 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 like you said, like a lot of this is being done out of principle. In that this is data that taxpayers have paid for once. Um, through uh, congressional appropriation of the staff that is uh, compiling it. And there's no reason that a taxpayer should have to pay for it again. That's David Yanofsky of Courts, and you can read more about his lawsuit against the International Trade Administration on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode, and Tony Chow is in the control room. Lucina Malesio is our intern. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. There's a link to download the theme for this podcast on our website. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me, podcasts at 538.com, with any ideas or comments about the show. A bit of good news and some answers to some emails I've been getting lately. All of the 538 podcasts are now available in the Google Play Store. You can track them down there if you're an Android user. And of course, you can find us in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
No matter where you listen, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.